1: post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: From the blackest corners of your mind... They call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We are just coming up on our one-year anniversary of disconnecting from the mothership. Yes, it's hard to believe, but as of Monday, that marks one year since we exited the District of Wonders, left the safety of our sister podcast, Starship Sofa, and ventured off into the dark, fathomless void of space on our own. And let me tell you, it's been a wild ride so far. No matter what Tony warned me of, I had no idea there were so many little details behind keeping a weekly podcast up and running. Bills to pay, funds to raise, processes to organize, troubles to shoot, not to mention writing and editing the podcast itself. We're a tiny little team here at Tales to Terrify, and that means... We all wear a lot of hats. And I honestly couldn't imagine doing this without the incredible hat-wearing talent and dedication of our editor, Seth Williams. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Seth, you're the dark ichor that pumps through our cadaverous heart, that keeps this infernal beast stalking through nightmares and feeding our fears. Thank you, and I'm so proud to have you by my side through all of this. Of course, the two of us couldn't do this alone, either. We've got an amazing team of associate editors who do everything from slush reading to proof listening to all that administrative stuff like filing contracts and updating spreadsheets. Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, and Julia Zellman, thanks to each of you for hopping on this crazy ride. Your passion and hard work Helps bring this podcast to unlife each week. And at the risk of making this the length of an Oscar acceptance speech, please don't play me off just yet, I can't dole out thank yous without giving a huge shout out to you, our listeners. Whether you support us on Patreon, review us on iTunes, or just tune in each week to listen, it means so much to us that you choose to let us seep our dark tales. Into your ears. And, of course, if you do have the means and would consider supporting us on Patreon, that would do more for us than you know. As I've said, we're a tiny little team comprised entirely of volunteers. Our staff and narrators do this out of love love for the horror genre, love for audio fiction, love for producing dark and deadly entertainment for your ears. Giving back even just a little will get us one step closer to compensating everyone associated with the podcast, something we've been working hard towards since day one. And with new Patreon benefits and rewards, it's worth your while more than ever, too. Every single dollar we make here at Tales to Terrify goes back into producing this podcast, as it should. That means the more support we have, the more stories we can produce, the more bonuses and benefits we can muster, and the more we can reward the people who make this podcast possible. So if you haven't already, I really encourage you to take a run over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify. You know what? Pause this episode for a minute, and click the link in the show notes to head over and take a look. I mean, as long as you're not driving, of course. If you sign up to support us, you'll not only get the satisfaction of knowing you're helping to create one of the longest-running horror podcasts out there, but you'll have access to all kinds of bonus content and upcoming promo goodies. Of course, if you don't have the means to support us through Patreon, giving us a rating or writing a review on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts, is an incredible gift too. Or tell your friends. Tell your family, spread the darkness, and help us bring new listeners into the fold, children of the night. Speaking of new listeners, or new supporters at least, I'd like to send a big thank you to our latest Patreon subscriber, Lori Reinhardt. Thank you so much, Lori, for making our Twisted Tales possible. And another shout-out to Stuart Finley, who's helped support the podcast virtually from the moment we separated from the mothership. I think I speak for everyone when I say you're an absolute star for helping us to keep this dark vessel afloat through the chaos and uncertainty of our rebirth. My heartfelt goal for this next year is to build our Patreon base enough that we can make Tales to Terrify entirely self-sustaining. To reduce our reliance on advertising expand the number and quality of stories we produce, and compensate the amazing people who make this podcast possible. But we can only do that with your help. I hope you'll join me in making this a truly breakout year for Tales to Terrify. While we're on the topic of new content, I mentioned what feels like a lifetime ago that I'm hoping to get back on the road and dive into some more regional myths, legends, and haunting tales from my half of North America. The true North, strong and free, as the anthem says. Yes, I think it's time we start planning a little trip through the darker side of my homeland, Canada. And the best part? You don't even have to leave your house. While we might be known in other parts of the world for our excessive politeness, And delicious creations like maple syrup and poutine, there's a very different Canada that lurks not far beneath the surface. A Canada stained dark with echoes of the supernatural. So, start packing now, and don't forget your flashlight as we get set to explore some of the darker corners of the great white north. But for tonight, sit back and relax, grab a nice cup of tea or a glass of wine. Close your eyes. Again, assuming you're not driving, I've brought along some shadows that I'd like to share with you tonight. Our first tale this evening comes to us from S.J. Budd. S.J. Budd grew up in Cornwall, surrounded by myths and legends. She has always been fascinated by anything out of the ordinary. Her work has appeared in over 20 magazines, including... Aphotic Realm, Sanitarium Magazine, Dark Fire Fiction, Mystic Blue Review, Siren's Call Publications, Dead Man's Tone, Inner Sins, Aphelion, Bewildering Stories, and Blood Moon Rising Magazine. Children of the Night, join me for S.J. Budd's Doing God's Work, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: Annalati came back on Friday. She was still dead, still clutching her favourite handbag with a sharp clasp. She had always carried it on the crook of her arm. Somehow it made it through with her. Down beyond my dark window, I was thinking of all the wishing apples I'd buried deep under a new moon in my garden. Their delicate crimson skins etched with old powerful runic words to bring
0: her back. It had worked. I was only 14. I had come into my power. Just a couple
3: of days before, I had cried until my eyes swelled and reddened, until I could no longer feel my face. I had thought this empty feeling would never end. After her funeral in the old church, on top of the hill, I thought she was gone forever. My tears mourning for all those moments to come that we would never share. She had been taken too soon. I couldn't understand how someone could be there beside you one minute, ruling your heart and be utterly gone the next. She was always right about everything, my Nana Lottie. Her word was law. She didn't need a watch to know the time and always had a keen sense of what was to come. When my cat died, leaving a hole in my chest, she had perfectly explained my grief. She said, When someone passes on to the other side, you don't just mourn the person you lost, you mourn for what you never had from them, what you couldn't give them, and all that would remain unwritten. I hadn't yet shown my Nanalati the woman I was going to become. I wanted more than anything for her to be proud of me. After her return, Nanalati appeared only to me. It was all secret. She came in with the descent of night, when the night chills crept in through the draft in my bedroom window. I don't know how she got back in, whether there had been a portal or a fairy ring of silver mushrooms sprouting
0: up under our fir tree in the back garden. I didn't know how it all worked, neither did she. Her return
3: happened when I was alone in bed, waiting for sleep, staring into the black nothingness above. A black cloud curdled at the foot of my bed.
0: Heavy like smoke with fine outreaching tendrils knitting together. I hadn't been sure if I was awake.
3: Inside the mass I saw something that had not been there a few moments before. I stared unblinking until it took a shape. Vague outlines at first, nothing more than an illusion of strange curves conjoining in a random sequence. Then it was as if the world had stopped, suspended, drawing my breath from me in one final leech. The shape pierced through the stillness, crackling like dry leaves being crushed underfoot. It called out my name with the solemnity of a prayer. There was a strong smell of lavender in the air. That's how I knew it was her in the darkness, and not some monster come to get me. She had always smelled of hot summer lavender. I had called her back, me, the forgotten girl whose name had been lost long ago. I held out my hands to haul her in. All this latent power that had been inside of me was now being put to good use.
0: Imagine what else I was capable of, what we could achieve together. We were going to live together forever. She was pleased to see me. I was still her favorite.
3: She had marked me out as being special from all my unruly cousins. I was her only granddaughter. I had always listened to her sage advice hidden within the stories of her life. I alone had promised to remember them long after she had gone, to prove she had left a mark on this world.
0: But now there was no need. She was going to be around forever. Mother had no idea of Nana Lottie's return.
3: They had never been close, and over time the gap had widened into hatred, which would course for centuries like a river through the family line. Nana's eyes swiveled to my bedroom floor, not so pleased to see the state of my room, which under her watch had been meticulously clean and tidy. Dirty clothes meant for the wash were now lying everywhere, amongst half-read books and furry plates stashed under the bed. I began to tidy up without prompting. She unclasped her handbag and powdered her face from her compact. Nothing could change her wan skin. She looked more like a stage actor in clownish makeup,
0: macabre overarched eyebrows and crude lipstick, but I could live with that. She was always going to look dead. She would feel cold if I could bring myself to touch her. My
3: eyes averted from the blue discoloration under her eyes that was never going to fade. Nana Lottie wasn't so pleased with my mother, who had left out a microwave meal for my dinner that night. It was okay, lasagna was my favorite, but I was most pleased to have my dear old Nana Lottie back. Her cooking was the best. I had been getting bored being on my own. Films and TV too hard to watch by myself. The couch felt so big and empty after my second dad left. Without him, the hours between sleep and school felt longer. Mother was always working late now. She hated the silence in the house that rang in her ears each time she unlocked the door and found only me. Nana Lati knew her mission, but she wouldn't tell me why she had come back. She said I wasn't ready for that part. I loved how she still sucked merry mints. The smell of them also helped disguise the screaming scent of decay around her. On the Monday morning, she was still there. I wanted to take the day off to school to spend all my time with her, but she wouldn't allow my education to suffer. Her cold eyes pouring into my soul assured me she would still be here when I got back. The whole house needed a good clean, and I left her in the kitchen, struggling to tie the apron strings behind her back with her broken brittle fingers. Later she was going to teach me how to bake a cottage pie. As I walked along the cracked pavements to the cold fear that was school, my stomach dreamed of a crispy cheese crusted topping oozing with fat and onions. Home was a sanctuary once more. Nanalati still wouldn't tell me the reasons for her reappearance. I asked again. She answered reluctantly, "Because she loved me so much." I didn't even mind when Stacy gave me a dead arm during PE for getting in her way during netball practice. Having Nanalati back made me strong. You see, my Nanalati really loved me. Not in the cuddly way your nan's do. She loved me with the ferocity of a hungry wolf perched on the edge of survival. That was why she used to beat me and lock me in my room when I needed discipline. She did it for my own good, so that I wouldn't turn into my mother when I came of age. Nanalotti couldn't hide her disappointment in my mum. She tried her best to raise a lady, but it just hadn't played out that way. Nanalotti said my mother had been a wild thing more suited for empty moors and hunting, than humanity. Mum had me when she was 18. I was an accident that had cost her a lifetime. It meant she had to drop out of college and get any old job which didn't need qualifications and experience. From then on, she just had to work the jobs she was given because Nanalati wanted her to learn how to manage by herself. I never knew my dad, but it's okay, neither did Mother. I'm sure if Nanolati had been able to trace him, he would have played a big part in my life. I bet he's a real nice guy. He's probably married now, with more kids. I hope he's really happy. I always wondered about my father, but Nanolati warned me not to be foolish,
0: that I mustn't look for him, ever. Together, we made a brilliant cottage pie after school. My house smelt like a
3: home again. I told her about Stacy picking on me, and she said it was Mum's fault for raising me to be too sensitive. Girl has got to be tough if she wants to be a real woman, Nanalati said with a steel look in her eye. I wanted to be just like her. Mum didn't get to try our pie. I really wanted her to, but Nanalati made me portion it up carefully and put it in the freezer to keep so that I would always have a decent meal to come
0: home to. That night, I was in bed asleep before Mom came home. Nana Loti woke me late in the night.
3: Her eyes shining darkly were wild, prepped for battle. She didn't
0: sleep when I slept. She just sat in the chair across from my bed, tutting about this and that. Loti leaned in real close until the scent of her turned my insides green and mulchy.
3: I just can't have you turning into your mother. She will be the ruin of you and I won't let this streak of evil unfold. She came ever closer to me, in a way that made my skin shrivel up. This is why I came back, Phoebe. I have a god's work to do. I know a way to save you. She tugged at my quilt with her spindly fingers crawling up like black spiders, making sure I'd heard. I did as I was told. I trusted my Nana Lottie. It was so rare to hear my name spoken out loud. I was the only person in her world. She'd never forget me like everyone else had done. She loved me too much. I took it all from the garage and poured it all over my mom's bed. It took all my resolve not to wake her,
0: but my faith was stronger. Nanalotti wanted greatness for me. All I had to do was follow her word.
3: Mom was sleeping heavily, under a thick duvet that still stank of Andy, my second dad. Deep red wine scented her skin as she slept. I knew then she hadn't been working late. She'd been out there living another life, away from me. I looked to Nanalati, who was watching over me, as I brought the lighter out in my trembling hand. It was as if I had drank ten Red Bulls in one hit. I didn't see the sense in this, but she was right. Things had to change. This didn't seem the right thing to do, but the brazen, hungry look in Nana's eyes, which I could detect even in the darkness, propelled me to save myself. Nana lotti always said that in this life, if you wanted to make a mark on this world, You had to hurl yourself against all obstacles for them to fall away. So I did it. I let the lighter fall to the bed. Watched the flames dance alive, like witches celebrating the turn of the wheel around a bonfire. It was so pretty. It felt like bonfire night, warm and magical. Orange is such a cheerful colour, until the pain sets in, Except this night there was no guy on the fire, just me and my mum, witches who had to be burnt to absolve their past and future sins. This was a God's work, and I felt holy for the first time in my life. This is how much my Nana Lati loves me, how far she will go to teach me a valuable lesson to protect me from myself.
2: That was S.J. Budd's Doing God's Work, as read by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests. She has been a co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 2005 to 2009, the co-host for the Babylon podcast from 06 to 2012, and host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas, before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients, in addition to having fun with the slice of sci fi websites, and also does voiceover and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Our second story this evening
1: is a classic
2: from Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne was an American novelist, dark romantic, and short story writer. His works often focus on history, morality, and religion. He was born in 1804 in Salem, Massachusetts, to Nathaniel Hawthorne and the former Elizabeth Clark Manning. His ancestors include John Hawthorne, the only judge involved in the Salem witch trials who never repented of his actions. In fact, Nathaniel changed his last name to Hawthorne in order to downplay this connection. The Scarlet Letter, his most well-known work, was published in 1850, followed by a succession of other novels. Much of Hawthorne's writing centers on New England, many works featuring moral metaphors with an anti-Puritan inspiration. His fiction works are considered part of the Romantic movement and, more specifically, dark Romanticism. His work often features themes that center on the inherent evil and sin of humanity and focus on moral messages and deep psychological complexity. Listen with me, children of the night, to Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Minister's Black Veil, first published in the 1832 edition of The Token and Atlantic Souvenir.
4: The sexton stood on the porch of Milford meeting-house, pulling busily at the bell-rope. The old people of the village came stooping along the street. Children with bright faces tripped merrily besides their parents, Or mimicked a graver's gait and conscious dignity of their Sunday clothes. Spruce bachelors looked sidelong at the pretty maidens, And fancied that the Sabbath sunshine made them prettier than on weekdays. When the throng had mostly streamed onto the porch, the sexton began to toll the bell, keeping his eye on the reverend Mr. Hooper's door. The first glimpse of the clergyman's figure was the signal for the bell to cease its summons. "'But what has good parson Hooper got upon his face?' cried the sexton in astonishment. All within hearing immediately turned about and beheld the semblance of Mr. Hooper, "'pacing slowly his meditative way towards the meeting-house. "'With one accord they stared, "'expressing more wonder than if some strange minister "'were coming to dust the cushions of Mr. Hooper's pulpit. "'Are you sure that's our parson?' "'inquired Goodman Gray of the sexton. "'Of a certainty it's good, Mr. Hooper,' replied the sexton. "'He was to have exchanged pulpits with Parson Shute of Westbury, "'but Parson Shute sent to excuse himself yesterday.' being to preach a funeral sermon. The cause of so much amazement may appear sufficiently slight. Mr. Hooper, a gentlemanly person of about thirty, though still a bachelor, was dressed with due clerical neatness, as if a careful wife had starched his band and brushed the weekly dust from his Sunday garb. There was but one thing remarkable in his appearance. Swathed about his forehead, and hanging down over his face, so low as to be shaken by his breath, Mr. Hooper had on a black veil. On a nearer view it seemed to consist of two folds of crepe, which entirely concealed his features, except the mouth and chin, but probably did not intercept his sight, further than giving a darkened aspect to all living and inanimate things. With this gloomy shade before him, Good Mr. Hooper walked onward at a slow and quiet pace, stooping somewhat and looking on the ground as is customary with abstracted men, yet nodding kindly to those of his parishioners who still waited on the meeting-house steps. But so wonderstruck were they that his greetings hardly met with a return. I can't really feel as if it's good Mr. Hooper's face behind that piece of crepe, said the sexton. I don't like it, muttered an old woman, as she hobbled into the meeting-house. He has changed himself into something awful, only by hiding his face. "'Our parson has gone mad,' cried Goodman Gray, following him across the threshold. A rumour of some unaccountable phenomenon had preceded Mr. Hooper into the meeting-house, and had set all the congregation astir. Few could refrain from twisting their heads towards the door, Many stood upright and turned directly about, while several little boys clambered upon their seats and came down again with a terrible racket. There was a general bustle, a rustling of women's gowns and shuffling of men's feet, greatly at variance with that hushed response which should have attended the entrance of the minister. But Mr. Hooper appeared not to notice the perturbation of his people. He entered with almost noiseless steps, bent his head mildly to the pews on each side, and bowed as he passed his oldest parishioner, a white-haired great-grandsire, who occupied an armchair in the centre of the aisle. It was strange to observe how slowly this venerable man became conscious of something singular in the appearance of his pastor. He seemed not to fully partake of the prevailing wonder, till Mr. Hooper had ascended the stairs and showed himself in the pulpit, face to face with his congregation, except for the black veil. That mysterious emblem was never once withdrawn. It shook with his measured breaths as he gave out the psalm. It threw its obscurity between him and the holy page as he read the scriptures, and while he prayed, the veil lay heavily upon his uplifted countenance. Did he seek to hide it from the dread being whom he was addressing? Such was the effect of this simple piece of crepe that more than one woman of delicate nerves was forced to leave the meeting-house. Yet perhaps the pale-faced congregation was almost as fearful a sight to the minister as his black veil to them. Mr. Hooper had the reputation of a good preacher, but not an energetic one. He strove to win his people heavenward by mild, persuasive influences, rather than to drive them thither by the thunders of the word. The sermon, which he now delivered, was marked by the same characteristics of style and manner as the general series of his pulpit oratory. But there was something, either in the sentiment of the discourse itself or in the imagination of the auditors, which made it greatly the most powerful effort that they had ever heard from their pastor's lips. It was tinged, rather more darkly than usual, With the gentle gloom of Mr. Hooper's temperament. The subject had referenced to secret sin And those sad mysteries which we hide from our nearest and dearest And would fain conceal from our own consciousness, Ever forgetting that the omniscient can detect them. A subtle power was breathed into his words. Each member of the congregation, the most innocent girl, and the man of hardened breast felt as if the preacher had crept upon them, behind his awful veil, and discovered their hoarded iniquity of deed or thought. Many spread their clasped hands to their bosoms. There was nothing terrible in what Mr. Hooper said, at least no violence, and yet, with every tremor of his melancholy voice, the hearers quaked. An unsought pathos came hand in hand with awe. So sensible were the audience of some unwonted attribute in their minister that they longed for a breath of wind to blow aside the veil almost believing that a stranger's visage would be discovered, though the form, gesture, and voice were those of Mr. Hooper. At the close of services the people hurried out, WITH INDECOROUS CONFUSION EAGER TO COMMUNICATE THEIR PENT-UP AMAZEMENT AND CONSCIOUS OF LIGHTER SPIRITS THE MOMENT THEY LOST SIGHT OF THE BLACK VEIL. SOME GATHERED IN LITTLE CIRCLES HUDDLED CLOSELY TOGETHER WITH THEIR MOUTHS ALL WHISPERING IN THE CENTER. SOME WENT HOMEWARD ALONE WRAPPED IN SILENT MEDITATION. SOME TALKED LOUDLY AND PROFANED THE SABBATH DAY WITH OSTENTATIOUS LAUGHTER. A few shook their sagacious heads, intimating that they could penetrate the mystery, while one or two affirmed that there was no mystery at all, but only that Mr. Hooper's eyes were so weakened by the midnight lamp as to require a shade. After a brief interval forth came good Mr. Hooper also, in the rear of his flock. Turning his veiled face from one group to another, He paid due reverence to the horde he heads, Saluted the middle-aged with kind dignity As their friend and spiritual guide, Greeted the young with mingled authority and love, And laid his hands on the little children's heads To bless them. Such was always his custom on the Sabbath day. Strange and bewildered looks repaid him For his courtesy. None, as on former occasions, aspired to the honour of walking by their pastor's side. Old Squire Saunders, doubtless by an accidental lapse of memory, neglected to invite Mr. Cooper to his table, for the good clergyman had been wont to bless the food almost every Sunday since his settlement. He returned, therefore, to the parsonage, and at the moment of closing the door was observed to look back upon the people, all of whom, had their eyes fixed upon the minister. A sad smile gleamed faintly from beneath the black veil, and flickered about his mouth, glimmering as he disappeared. How strange, said a lady, that a simple black veil, such as any woman might wear on her bonnet, should become such a terrible thing on Mr. Hooper's face. Something must surely be amiss with Mr. Hooper's intellects. "'observed her husband, the physician of the village. "'But the strangest part of the affair "'is the effect of this vagary "'even on a sober-minded man like myself. "'The black veil, though it covers only our parson's face, "'throws an influence over his whole person "'and makes him ghost-like from head to foot. "'Do you not feel it so?' "'Truly I do,' replied the lady, "'and I would not be alone with him for the world. "'I wonder,' He is not afraid to be alone with himself. Men sometimes are so, said her husband. The afternoon service was attended with similar circumstance. At its conclusion, the bell tolled for the funeral of a young lady. The relatives and friends were assembled in the house, and the more distant acquaintances stood about the door speaking of the good qualities of the deceased when their talk was interrupted by the appearance of Mr. Hooper, still covered with his black veil. It was now an appropriate emblem. The clergyman stepped into the room where the corpse was laid, and bent over the coffin to take a last farewell of his deceased parishioner. As he stooped, the veil hung straight down from his forehead, so that if her eyes had not been closed forever, the dead maiden might have seen his face. Could Mr. Hooper be fearful of her glance that he so hastily cut back the black veil? A person who watched the interview between the dead and the living scrupled not to affirm that at the instant when the clergyman's features were disclosed, the corpse had slightly shuddered, rustling the shroud and muslin cap, though the countenance retained the composure of death. A superstitious old woman was the only witness of this prodigy. From the coffin Mr. Hooper passed into the chamber of the mourners, And thence to the head of the staircase to make the funeral prayer. It was a tender and heart-dissolving prayer, Full of sorrow, yet so imbued with celestial hope That the music of a heavenly harp swept by the fingers of the dead Seemed faintly to be heard amongst the saddest accents of the minister. The people trembled. Though they but darkly understood him When he prayed that they, and himself, And all of mortal race, might be ready, As he trusted this young maiden had been, For the dreadful hour that should snatch The veil from their faces. The bearers went heavily forth, And the mourners followed, Saddening all the street, With the dead before them, And Mr. Hooper in his black veil behind. "'Why do you look back?' said one of the procession to his partner. "'I had a fancy,' replied she, "'that the minister and the maiden spirit were walking hand in hand.' "'And so had I, at the same moment,' said the other. "'That night the handsomest couple in Milford Village were to be joined in wedlock. "'Though reckoned a melancholy man, Mr. Hooper,' had a placid cheerfulness for such occasions, which often excited a sympathetic smile, where his livelier merriment would have been thrown away. There was no quality of his disposition which made him more beloved than this. The company of the wedding awaited his arrival with impatience, trusting that the strange awe which had gathered over him throughout the day would now be dispelled. But such was not the result. When Mr. Hooper came, the first thing that their eyes rested on was the same horrible black veil, which had added deeper gloom to the funeral and could pretend nothing but evil on the wedding. Such was its immediate effect on the guests that a cloud seemed to have rolled duskily from beneath the black crepe and dimmed the light of the candles. The bridal pair stood up before the minister, but the bride's cold fingers quivered in the tremulous hand of the bridegroom, and her deathlike paleness caused a whisper that the maiden who had been buried a few hours before was come from her grave to be married. If ever another wedding were so dismal, it was that famous one where they told the wedding now. After performing the ceremony, Mr. Cooper raised a glass of wine to his lips, "'wishing happiness to the new married couple "'in a strain of mild pleasantry "'that ought to have brightened the features of the guests "'like a cheerful gleam from the hearth. "'At that instant, "'catching a glimpse of his figure in the looking-glass, "'the black veil involved his own spirit "'in the horror with which it had overwhelmed all the others. "'His frame shuddered, his lips grew white, HE SPIT THE UNTASTED WINE UPON THE CARPET, AND RUSHED FORTH INTO THE DARKNESS. FOR THE EARTH, TOO, HAD ON HER BLACK VEIL. THE NEXT DAY THE WHOLE VILLAGE OF MILFORD TALKED OF LITTLE ELSE THAN PARSON HOOPER'S BLACK VEIL. THAT, AND THE MYSTERY CONCEALED BEHIND IT, SUPPLIED A TOPIC FOR DISCUSSION BETWEEN ACQUAINTANCES MEETING IN THE STREET, AND GOOD WOMEN GOSSIPING AT THEIR OPEN WINDOWS. It was the first item of news that the tavern-keeper told his guests. The children babbled of it on their way to school. One imitative little imp covered his face with an old black handkerchief, thereby so affrighting his playmates that the panic seized himself, and he well-nigh lost his wits by his own waggery. It was remarkable that all of the busybodies and impertinent people in the parish, not one, ventured to put the plain question to Mr. Hooper wherefore he did this thing. Hithro, whenever there appeared the slightest call for such interference, he had never lacked advisers, nor shown himself adverse to be guided by their judgment. If he erred at all, it was by so painful a degree of self-distrust that even the mildest censure would lead him to consider indifferent action as a crime. Yet, though so well acquainted with this amiable weakness, No individual among his parishioners chose to make the black veil a subject of friendly remonstrance. There was a feeling of dread, neither plainly confessed nor carefully concealed, which caused each to shift the responsibility upon another, till at length it was found expedient to send a deputation to the church in order to deal with Mr. Hooper about the mystery before it should grow into a scandal never did an embassy so ill discharge its duties. The minister received them with friendly courtesy, but became silent after they were seated, leaving to his visitors the whole burden of introducing their important business. The topic, it might be supposed, was obvious enough. There was the black veil swathed around mister Hooper's forehead and concealing every feature above his placid mouth, on which At times they could perceive the glimmering of a melancholy smile. But that piece of crepe, to their imagination, Seemed to hang down before his heart, The symbol of a fearful secret between him and them. Were the veil but cast aside, they might speak freely of it, But not till then. Thus they sat a considerable time speechless, confused, and shrinking uneasily from Mr. Hooper's eye, which they felt to be fixed upon them with an invisible glance. Finally, the deputies returned abashed to their constituents, pronouncing the matter too weighty to be handled, except by a council of the churches, if, indeed, it might not require a general synod. But there was one person in the village unappalled by the awe with which the black veil had impressed all besides herself. When the deputies returned without an explanation, or even venturing to demand one, she, with the calm energy of her character, determined to chase away the strange cloud that appeared to be settling around Mr. Hooper, every moment more darkly than before. As his plighted wife, it should be her privilege to know what the black veil concealed. At the minister's first visit, therefore, she entered upon the subject with a direct simplicity, which made the task easier for both him and her. After he had seated himself, she fixed her eyes steadfast upon the veil, but could discern nothing of the dreadful gloom that had so overawed the multitude. It was but a double fold of crepe, Hanging down from his forehead to his mouth, Then slightly stirring with his breath. No, she said aloud, smiling, There is nothing terrible to this piece of crepe, Except that it hides a face Which I am always glad to look upon. Come, good sir, Let the sun shine from behind the cloud. First lay aside your black veil, Then tell me why you put it on. Mr. Hooper's smile glimmered faintly. There is an hour to come, said he, When all of us shall cast aside our veils. Take it not amiss, beloved friend, If I wear this piece of crepe till then. Your words are a mystery, too, returned the young lady. Take away the veil from them, at least. Elizabeth, I will, said he, So far as my vow may suffer me. Know, then, this veil is a type and symbol, And I am bound to wear it ever, Both in the light and the darkness, In solitude and before the gaze of multitudes, And as with strangers, so with my familiar friends. No mortal eye will see it withdrawn. This dismal shade must separate me from the world. Even you, Elizabeth, can never come behind it. What grievous affliction hath befallen you, she earnestly inquired, that you should thus darken your eye forever. "'If it be a sign of mourning,' replied Mr. Hooper, "'I, perhaps, like most other mortals, "'have sorrows dark enough to be typified by a black veil.' "'But what if the world will not believe "'that is the type of innocent sorrow?' urged Elizabeth. "'Beloved and respected as you are, "'there may be whispers that you hide your face "'under the consciousness of secret sin.' For the sake of your holy office, do away with this scandal. The colour rose into her cheeks as she intimated the nature of the rumours that were already abroad in the village. But Mr. Hooper's mildness did not forsake him. He even smiled again, that same sad smile, which always appeared like a faint glimmering of light, proceeding from the obscurity beneath the veil. If I hide my face for sorrow, There is cause enough, he merely replied, And if I cover it for secret sin, What mortal might not do the same? And with this gentle but unconquerable obstinacy, Did he resist all her entreaties? At length Elizabeth sat silent. For a few moments she appeared lost in thought, Considering, probably, what new methods might be tried To withdraw her lover from so dark a fantasy, which, if it had no other meaning, was perhaps a symptom of mental disease. Though of a firmer character than his own, the tears rolled down her cheeks. But, in an instant, as it were, a new feeling took the place of sorrow. Her eyes were fixed insensibly on the black veil, when, like a sudden twilight in the air, its terror fell around her. She rose and stood trembling before him. "'And do you feel it, then, at last?' he said mournfully. She made no reply, but covered her eyes with her hand and turned to leave the room. He rushed forward and caught her arm. "'Have patience with me, Elizabeth,' he cried passionately. "'Do not desert me. Though this veil must be between us here on earth,' Be mine, and hereafter there shall be no veil over my face, No darkness between our souls. It is but a mortal veil, it is not for eternity. Oh, you know not how lonely I am, and how frightened, To be alone behind my black veil. Do not leave me in this miserable obscurity forever. Lift the veil but once, and look me in the face, said she. Never, it cannot be. "'replied Mr. Hooper. "'Then farewell,' said Elizabeth. "'She withdrew her arm from his grasp "'and slowly departed, "'pausing at the door to give one long, shuddering gaze "'that seemed almost to penetrate the mystery of the black veil. "'But, even amid his grief, "'Mr. Hooper smiled to think that "'only a material emblem had separated him from happiness, "'though the horrors which it shadowed forth must be drawn darkly between the fondest of lovers. From that time no attempts were made to remove Mr. Hooper's black veil, or, by a direct appeal, to discover the secret which it was supposed to hide. By persons who claimed a superiority to popular prejudice, it was reckoned merely an eccentric whim, Such as often mingles with the sober actions of men otherwise rational, And tinges them all with its own semblance of insanity. But with the multitude, good Mr. Hooper was irreparably a bugbear. He could not walk the street with any peace of mind, So conscious was he that the gentle and timid would turn aside to avoid him, And that others would make it a point of hardihood to throw themselves in his way. The impertinence of the latter class compelled him to give up his customary walk at sunset to the burial-ground, for when he leaned pensively over the gate there would always be faces behind the gravestones, peeping at his black veil. A fable went the rounds that the stare of the dead people drove him thence. It grieved him to the very depths of his kind heart to observe how the children fled from his approach, breaking up their merriest sports while his melancholy figure was yet far off. Their instinctive dread caused him to feel more strongly than aught else that a preternatural horror was interwoven with the threads of the black crape. In truth, his own antipathy to the veil was known to be so great that he never willingly passed before a mirror, nor stooped to drink at a still fountain, lest, in its peaceful bosom, he should be affrighted by himself. This was what gave plausibility to the whispers that Mr. Hooper's conscience tortured him for some great crime too horrible to be entirely concealed, or otherwise than so obscurely intimated. Thus, from behind the black veil, there rolled a cloud into the sunshine, an ambiguity of sin or sorrow which enveloped the poor minister, so that the love or sympathy could never reach him. It was said that ghost and fiend consorted with him there. With self-shuddering and outward terrors, he walked continually into its shadow, groping darkly within his own soul, or gazing through a medium that saddened the whole world. Even the lawless wind, it was believed, respected his dreadful secret, and never blew aside the veil. But still good Mr. Hooper sadly smiled at the pale visages of the worldly throng as he passed by. Among all its bad influences, the black veil had one desirable effect of making its wearer a very efficient clergyman. By the aid of his mysterious emblem, for there was no other apparent cause, he became a man of awful power over souls that were in agony for sin. His converts always regarded him with a dread peculiar to themselves, Affirming, though but figuratively, that, Before he brought them to celestial light, They had been with him behind the black veil. Its gloom, indeed, enabled him to sympathize with all dark affections. Dying sinners cried aloud for Mr. Hooper, And would not yield their breath till he appeared, Though ever as stooped to whisper consolation, They shuddered at the veiled face So near to their own. Such were the terrors of the black veil, Even when death had bared its visage. Strangers came long distances To attend services at his church With the mere idle purpose Of gazing at his figure, Because it was forbidden them To behold his face. But many were made to quake Ere they departed. Once, During Governor Belcher's administration, Mr. Hooper was appointed to preach the election sermon. Covered with his black veil, he stood before the chief magistrate, the council, and the representatives, and wrought so deep an impression that the legislative measures of that year were characterized by all the gloom and piety of our earlier ancestral sway. In this manner, Mr. Hooper spent a long life, irreproachable in outward acts. Yet shrouded in dismal suspicion, Kind and loving, Though unloved and dimly feared, A man, apart from men, Shunned in their health and joy, But ever summoned to their aid In mortal anguish. As years wore on, Shedding their snows Above his sable veil, He acquired a name Throughout the New England churches, And they called him Father Hooper. Nearly all his parishioners who were of mature age when he was settled, had been borne away by many a funeral. He had one congregation in the church, and a more crowded one in the churchyard. And having wrought so late into the evening, and done his work so well, it was now good Father Hooper's turn to rest. Several persons were visible by the shaded candlelight in the death chamber of the old clergyman, Natural connections he had none, but there was the decorously grave though unmoved physician, seeking only to mitigate the last pangs of the patient whom he could not save. There were the deacons and other eminently pious members of his church. There was also the Reverend Mr. Clark of Westbury, a young and zealous divine, who had ridden in haste to pray by the bedside of the expiring minister. There was the nurse, no hired handmaiden of death, But one whose calm affection had endured thus long in secrecy, In solitude, amid the chill of the age, And would not perish even in the dying hour. Who but Elizabeth? And there lay the hoary head of good father Hooper Upon the death-pillow, with the black veil still swathed About his brow, and reaching down over his face so that each more difficult gasp of his faint breath caused it to stir. Although life that piece of crape had hung between him and the world, it had separated him from cheerful brotherhood and woman's love, and kept him, that saddest of all prisons, his own heart. And still it lay upon his face as to deepen the gloom of his darksome chamber, and shade him from the sunshine of eternity. For some time previous, his mind had been confused, wavering doubtfully between the past and the present, and hovering forward, as it were, at intervals into indistinctness of the world to come. There had been feverish turns which tossed him from side to side and wore away what little strength he had. But in his most convulsive struggles, and in the wildest vagaries of his intellect, when no other thought retained its sober influence, he still showed an awful solicitude lest the black veil should slip aside. Even if his bewildered soul could have forgotten, there was a faithful woman at his pillow, who, with averted eyes, would have covered that aged face which she had last beheld in the comeliness of manhood. At length the death-stricken old man lay quietly in the torpor of mental and bodily exhaustion, with an imperceptible pulse, and breath that grew fainter and fainter, except when a long, deep, and irregular inspiration seemed to prelude the flight of his spirit. The minister of Westbury approached the bedside. Venerable Father Hooper, said he, the moment of your release is at hand. Are you ready for the lifting of the veil that shuts in time from eternity? Father Hooper at first replied merely by a feeble motion of his head. Then, apprehensive, perhaps, that his meaning might be doubtful, he exerted himself to speak. Yea, said he, in faint accents, my soul hath a patient weariness until that veil be lifted. And it is fitting, resumed Reverend Mr. Clark, that a man so given to prayer, of such a blameless example, holy in deed and thought, So far as mortal judgment may pronounce, It is fitting that a father in the church Should leave a shadow on his memory That may seem to blacken a life so pure. I pray you, my venerable brother, Let not this thing be. Suffer us to be gladdened by your triumphant aspect As you go to your reward. Before the veil of eternity is lifted, Let me cast aside this black veil from your face. Thus speaking, the Reverend Mister. Clark bent forward to reveal the mystery of so many years, but exerting a sudden energy that made all the beholders stand aghast, Father Hooper snatched both his hands from beneath the bedclothes and pressed them strongly on the black veil, resolute to struggle if the minister of Westbury would contend with a dying man. Never, cried the veiled clergyman, on earth, never. "'Dark old man!' exclaimed the affrighted minister. "'With what horrible crime upon your soul are you now passing to the judgment?' "'Father Hooper's breath heaved, it rattled in his throat, "'but, with a mighty effort, grasping forward with his hands, "'he caught hold of life and held it back till he should speak. "'He even raised himself in bed and sat there, "'shivering with the arms of death around him, "'while the black veil hung down, awful.' At the last moment in the gathered terrors of a lifetime. And yet the faint, sad smile, so often there, Now seemed to glimmer from its obscurity And linger on Father Hooper's lips. "'Why do you tremble at me alone?' cried he, Turning his veiled face round the circle of pale spectators. "'Tremble also at each other. "'Have men avoided me, and women shown no pity, "'And children screamed and fled?' Only for my black veil? What but the mystery Which it obscurely typifies Has made this piece of crepe so awful? When the friend shows His innermost heart to his friend, The lover to his best beloved, When man does not vainly shrink From the eye of his creator, loathsomely treasuring up The secret of his sin, Then deem me a monster For the symbol beneath which I have lived and die. I look around me, And, lo, on every visage, a black veil. While his auditors shrank from one another in mutual affright, Father Hooper fell back upon his pillow, a veiled corpse, With a faint smile lingering on his lips. Still veiled, they laid him in his coffin, And a veiled corpse they bore him to the grave. The grass of many years has sprung up and withered on that grave, The burial stone is moss-grown, And good Mr. Hooper's face is dust. But awful is still the thought That it moldered beneath the black veil.
2: That was Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Minister's Black Veil, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares his life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if you'd like to donate through PayPal, you can find a link near the bottom of our homepage at tales and if you enjoy what we do, help us to spread the darkness with a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Ratings and reviews are crucial to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help us to get the word out so we can darken the dreams of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week, as we feed your inner demons with more Tales to Terrify.